made of paper, it's an academic paper, um, or a small group of people, so if anybody has a question or you don't hear me or something, please, or a small group, so feel free to um, interject. And I think, I just realized I'm getting old, because I forgot my reading glasses, and this is going to be a challenge. Um, so, basically, the, the title of the paper, as Jonathan said, is Global Antisemitism, A Crisis of Modernity. And I will read the paper for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then we can have a discussion um, with questions uh, or constructive or, or criticism or the like. So, I'm going to start off by defining anti-Semitism and get into the whole notion of modernity uh, and contemporary forms of anti-Semitism. So, anti-Semitism is a complex and at times perplexing form of hatred. Some observers refer to this as the longest hatred. It spans centuries of history, infecting different societies, religious, philosophical, and political movements, and even civilizations. In the aftermath of the Shoah of the Holocaust, some have even argued that anti-Semitism illustrates the limitations of enlightenment and modernity itself. Manifestations of anti-Semitism occur in numerous ideological-based narratives, and, is and, and in constructed identities of belonging and otherness, such as race, ethnicity, as well as nationalist and anti-nationalist movements. In the contemporary context of globalized relations, it appears that anti-Semitism has taken on a new and complex changing form uh, that needs to be decoded, mapped, and exposed. The academic study of anti-Semitism, like prejudice more generally, has a long and impressive intellectual and research history. It remains a topic of ongoing political, policy, and scholarly engagement. However, especially at this important historical juncture, unlike prejudice and discrimination directed at other social groups, anti-Semitism, in particular its contemporary forms and manifestations, is almost always studied outside organized academic frameworks. The purpose of our research center, ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy, is to try to create academic seminars, conferences, and research projects that will situate the study of antisemitism within a high caliber academic uh, setting. So basically, ISGAP runs these seminars here at Harvard. We have programs at the Columbia Law School at Fordham University of New York. We're opening a program at the University of Miami. We have a well-established program at McGill. We're opening a center at uh, Sapienza University in Rome uh, on the 25th of, of uh, November. So we're slowly trying to create these type of seminars and introduce uh, curriculum and research projects in the academy. So the process so this, this research is taking part in the process of globalization, or the processes of globalization has led to an increase, uh, increase in adversarial identity politics in the contemporary context of globalization. It is in, in this environment that Israel, a central manifestation of contemporary Jewish identity, and Jews more generally, have become the focus of scapegoating and hateful rhetoric. At a more structural and socioeconomic uh, level, the old ideolo all, 
the old ideologies and tendencies of anti-Semitism have re-emerged and are being fused with anti-Zionism, or what in many cases may not, might more appropriately be referred to as Israel bashing. The old theological and racist forms of European anti-Semitism are being amalgamated with anti-Jewish and anti-Israel pronouncements emanating in particular, but not exclusive, from the Muslim world, which is located mainly but not ex exclusively in and around the Middle East. Contemporary globalization and this, the related socioeconomic, cultural, and political processes um, are being fused with these historical tendencies, which creates the conditions that pose a threat to the Jewish people and the Jewish community in the diaspora. In addition, new structural realities within the realm of international relations and the emergence of anti-Israel propensities appear to pose a threat to Israel and the Jewish people in a manner not seen since the end of World War II. Once again, in the age of the globalization, the Jewish people seem to be caught between the aristocracy or the wealthy establishment or the core, and the marginalized and disenfranchised masses or the periphery as they have through much of history. So in a sense, there's a, a, you can draw the correlation, if you will, to what happened to the Jewish communities of Europe in between the, the First and Second World War, and perhaps what is happening to Israel. The sort of marginalized masses, the Middle East with um, failing states and societies that are unraveling, radical Islam following the, um, filling a vacuum, and the sort of the establishment, the Western establishment, unable or unwilling to respond to this, what I would call, incitement to genocidal anti-Semitism. When I say genocidal anti-Semitism as a scholar, but as political rhetoric, that the radical Islamist social movement, I'm not speaking about Muslims or Islam, use anti-Semitism as the fodder to gain more control in their societies, and they're inciting to genocidal anti-Semitism, i.e. the destruction of the Jewish people, and the demonization of Israel and the Jewish people. So the notion, for example, based on some hadith that Jews are the descendants of Jews and pigs, has become a mainstream uh, currency in many societies and many institutions in the Islamic world. So could you imagine, and I was just speaking uh, earlier this evening to a group at Hillel, could you imagine if a white African leader would come to the United Nations General Assembly and say publicly, believe at the core of his ideology that Africans, black Africans, were the descendants of apes and pigs. How many corporations in this state of our anti-racist uh, moment, fortunately so, would entertain doing business and having relations with a society led by an ideology that thought that a billion people in this world were descendants of apes and pigs? And yet, this is a commonly held belief by people of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iranian Revolutionary Regime, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the like, perceived Jews in this dehumanized context. And yet, I would argue that there's quite a lot of silence in the academy, in the human rights community, and in, among policymakers. So despite these... Um, Okay, so, so these new structural realities within the realm of international relations and the emergence of anti-Israel propensities appear to pose a threat to Israel and the Jewish people in a, in a serious manner. 
with the advent of the socialism of fools, a term describing the replacement um, of the search for real social and political equity with anti-Semitism, which is frequently attributed to August Babel, Jews continued to be targeted. In, in much the same way as in Europe, the current marginalization of the Jewish people in, our, in the Arab world, or more accurately, the marginalization of the image of the Jew, since most of the Jews were um, forced to leave or pressured to leave uh, the Arab societies in which they lived for nearly two millennium in the 1940s and the 1970s, um, that this, this, the image of the Jew as the problem of society is staggering and entering mainstream society. So as the, so, as the social movements in the Middle East have turned to their own version of the socialism as fools, i.e. that anti-Semitism fuels radical political Islam, they have incorporated lethal forms of European genocidal anti-Semitism as their fuel, fueled it with their Islamic ideology, specific ideology. However, many scholars, policymakers, and journalists of, of record still refuse to acknowledge the fact and to critically examine the ideology and mission of this social movement. And as a footnote, in yesterday's New York Times, or today's New York Times, Netanyahu is described as hysterical, which is an anti-Semitic trope in and of itself, and Rouhani and the Iranian revolutionary regime as moderates, and the hysterical Jewish leader is trying to scuttle any, any negotiations. Anti-Judaism is one of the most complex and at times perplexing forms of hatred. As evident from the range, um, from the range of research that this gap has done, from looking at things interdisciplinary and across the world, um, you can see that anti-Semitism has many facets and, and aspects. The term anti-Semitism, which was coined in the 1870s by Wilhelm Marr, is also controversial and at times confusing. Yet despite its etymological limitations and contradictions, it remains a valid and useful term. The term refers specifically to prejudice and discrimination against the Jewish people. Some incorrectly for incorrectly or for some for reasons of political expediency use the term to refer to prejudice against all so-called Semitic peoples, claiming that Arab people cannot be anti-Semitic because they are Semitic themselves. This is, fine, this is fine in terms of etymological musing, but not in terms of history or the history of language and thought, where terms acquire specific meanings over time that diverge from their own etymological origins. In fact, anti-Semitism refers to a specific form of hatred that is mainly European in origin and focuses upon the Jewish people. Some scholars prefer to use the term anti-Semitism, no capital A and no hyphen, um, since it refers to a form of hatred or a phenomenon rather than to a specific race or biologically determined group, which is problematic in and of itself. Emil Falkenheim, for example, used the unhyphenated form for this reason. He was the first to believe to use this. And we at ISGAP and most scholars who do research on anti-Semitism don't use the hyphen for this reason. So some scholars have examined the complexities of anti-Semitism and claim that it takes on several different forms, including social, economic, 
political, cultural, and religious. Rene Koenig, for example, contends that these different forms of anti-Semitism demonstrates that the origins of anti-Semitism could be and are rooted in different historical periods and different places or societies. What's important to realize is that when religion, in particular Christianity, European Christianity, represented the dominant way in which reality was perceived, the Jews were regarded as followers of the wrong religion. It was also believed that the refusal to accept the Christian Messiah disqualified them from any form of redemption or salvation, and even that Jewish and even that Jewish stubbornness hindered their world redemption. So not only were the Jews the problem, uh, blinded by the devil, blinded by their refusal to accept the Messiah, but their refusal to accept Christian Christians' notions of the Messiah also, in a sense, uh, inhibited or hindered or stopped the world from being redeemed. So the Jews were the problem. Uh, for world redemption. But the dominant manner in which Europeans perceived reality was based on notions of the state, where biologically determined groups such as race and ethnicity, the Jews were constructed as belonging to another inferior race, or even a dangerous race, that was poisoning the purity of the Aryan and white race. So again, the Jew had to be removed from the nation and from the race. So I would argue, unlike other forms of discrimination or prejudice or hatreds, that anti-Semitism has a unique quality in that there's something inherently genocidal in anti-Semitism because it stops, not only is there discrimination against the group, but the group's removal from society or the group's behavior hinders redemption or hinders the achievement of, uh, of, the, of the goals, of a major goal of the society or of the religion or civilization. At this moment, some argue that for religious reasons that the self-determination of non-Muslim others on so-called Islamic land is a sin and should not be tolerated. So, and the Jews, by the way, are the only non-Muslim others that have self-determination in that part of the world or what is perceived to be on Islamic land. Others in the West see Jewish stubbornness as the cause for radical Islam, jihadism, and, and the instability in the region. When it comes to Israel's policies and existence, they believe, many of the realists did until recently, I would argue, and if only the Jews would change, if only the Jews would change, the problems in the region and international relations as a whole would be resolved. So if only the Israelis change their policies in terms of settlement, or they draw the line somewhere else, or whatever it is that the Jews, the Israelis, once again are hindering the end of jihadism, the end of uh, redemption, or the, the, the advent or the coming of, of peace. Taken to its logical, logical conclusions, this perspective could lead to great destruction. Like other historical manifestations of anti-Semitism, uh, since it aims at the eradication of Israel and any or any semblance of Jewish self-determination, in the region. Despite the complete rejection of the Jewish narrative by the Iranian regime, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, and other Salafists or Islamists, many observers focus on the other and are, are content to blame the victim of this ideology without proper examining of the social movement and of the society. So this is what we were speaking about in the seminar earlier, blaming the victim. So it's the Israelis' fault 
that radical Islam exists. It's the Jews' fault that radical Islam is growing uh, in number. And, and at the same time, there's a taboo in the academy, in the media of record, to look at this ideology in a very constructive or a very critical manner. So it's easier to blame Netanyahu as hysterical without looking at the, re the revolutionary regimes uh, in Iran's ideology, their beliefs, and how they're implementing their well-constructed, deep, philosophical uh, worldview and their policies. So blame the Jew, blame the victim for causing the problem. And that's not to say that Israel is perfect or their contradictions, but radical Islam is not the fault of the victim of it. It's the immorality, I would argue, of those who are perpetuating this reactionary social movement, which is anti-democratic, uh, anti-citizenship, and the like. Contemporary forms of anti-Semitism has many layers. New forms are mixed with old ones, such as conspiracy theories about Jewish power and Jewish culture, apocalyptic sorry, theories concerning Jews. For example, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which played a key role in creating the conditions of the Holocaust or the Shoah, as well as European anti-Semitism more generally, has now become part of the political and cultural mainstream in several Muslim societies and institutions, even in the Western world. The above-mentioned complexities make it difficult to define the different forms that anti-Semitism takes. This, in turn, makes it problematic to address and analyze the subject matter. It is no wonder, then, that contemporary forms of anti-Semitism have been difficult, if not impossible, to acknowledge, study, measure, and oppose. One hopes that it will not be only future historians who come to understand and address today's lethal form of anti-Semitism, too late to affect policy, perceptions, and predestined predispositions. So in other words, there seems to be an inability for people in certain institutions in the West to understand, critique, and condemn anti-Semitism in the contemporary context. But when you speak about the anti-Semitism of the racist Nazis, everybody's happy to condemn the fascist racist Nazi anti-Semitism of 75 years ago. When people speak about Christian anti-Semitism, theological anti-Semitism, people today are happy to condemn that form of anti-Semitism. The Pope, the new Pope in particular, is unequivocal and powerfully denouncing anti-Semitism. It's wonderful. People no longer, except for a few with fringe radical crackpots, actually believe that races are superior and inferior and that Hitler or fascism is a good thing. These are crackpots. Yet, in, in churches, in the Vatican, for, for centuries, for hundreds of years, if not more, those anti-Semitic views were mainstream and caused great, great destruction. When Harvard and Yale in the 1920s and the 1930s, the notion of race and eugenics and for superior and inferior races was mainstream, mainstream. So people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a great African-American philosopher and thinker and urban studies scholar, could not get a job in the United States despite his PhD in philosophy from the University of Berlin because the dominant view at the time, Booker T. Washington, Robert Park, the Chicago School of Thought, 
was entrenched in sort of this Darwinian notion of race and segregation and, and, and the like. So when people came to condemn the mainstream ideology, there was no space for their dissenting voice and they couldn't get it work. And I submit to you today that contemporary forms of anti-Semitism, the demonization of Jews because of their connection and association with the State of Israel, the State of Israel in and of itself, not to say that there's not problems in Israeli society, there are many, but that Israel is the cause of jihadism and radical Islam, and Israel is the destabling force in the world, and all the other things that we hear on campus, this is anti-Semitism. This is genocidal forms of hatred. This is genocidal forms of hatred. And the New York Times can say that the leader of the democratic state of Israel is hysterical because there is a nation on the verge of acquiring a nuclear weapon that they clearly and consistently to their, not just their rhetoric, but their philosophical and religious worldview need to rid the world of Jews with self-determination of the Islamic land, that the Jews become the problem without any critical discussion. This is a problem. When Middle East studies departments in the best universities of this country cannot, cannot discuss anti-Semitism in the Arab world, this is a serious problem. And what will it take? What will it take for people to have a discussion, to have a debate? You know, I, I was saying to some students yesterday at McGill, I did a PhD at Oxford that David Harvey was this Marxist scholar, was one supervisor, and had Carrie Peach, a wonderful man. He was a, my other supervisor, he was sort of like a liberal, conservative, uh, number-crunching kind of uh, scholar. David Harvey was more social theory and a Marxist, but we used to discuss, we used to argue. And when I wrote my papers, they would critique my ideas, they would critique it seriously. But they would do it in a way to help me make a better argument. So I, I, I would write a paper with 20 references and they would rip it apart and I'd write it again with 50 references until it was airtight. They weren't trying to demonize me or say that my ideas were wrong. They were trying to critique me so that my ideas would be well, better formed. And we live in a moment where we can't even have this debate. That we can't come, I can't bring 10 articles on anti-Semitism in the Islamic world and somebody will say, no, 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 Charles, your reading list misses a whole bunch of issues. I'll read your 10 articles, but go read my 15. And I'll read the 15. We come back and we continue the discussion and the debate. But for some reason, the debate of the place of the Jew in the Middle East is a taboo. It's a taboo. It's okay. It's okay in this moment to, to demonize students and scholars and have the chutzpah to even talk about the idea. So, those of us who speak about anti-Semitism in the Middle East are often dismissed as apologists for the Zionist, racist, colonial, apartheid state. That those of us who, who deal with these issues are dismissed as neoconservative, which is also a euphemism for, for a Jew, by the way. So, how many on campuses are dismissed what is it like to be called a colonialist, a racist, an apartheid supporter, a fascist, a neocon in these environments? And yet, we are silent. So in the contemporary
context of global anti-Semitism, <coughs> international relations is an important issue. Um, and international relations are increasingly in a state of flux, as we can see, particularly in the Middle East. Um, in a state of flux and turmoil, as well as notions of tolerance, democratic principles, and the ideals of human rights and robust citizenship increasingly comes under attack or simply brushed aside, as in the negotiations of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. How many Western leaders spoke about human rights in Iran? It was completely off, off the agenda. These values appear to be receding, human rights and citizenship, within many institutions and societies, while the international community seems to be less strident in trying to defend them. It would appear that the Jew, or perhaps more importantly, the image of the Jew, or the imaginary Jew, as Alain Finkelkraut aptly describes, is at the middle of this global moment. Both historically and in the contemporary context, anti-Semitism is a social disease that begins with Jews, but it never ends with Jews, making the Jewish people the proverbial canary in the coal mine. The deadly strain of this hatred turns against other groups such as women, gay people, moderate Muslims, and other sectors of the population which are perceived as not being ideologically pure, as well as being against the key, as being against the key, notions of democracy, democratic notions, such as citizenship, equality before the law, and religious pluralism. Anti-Semitism, consequently, is a universal human rights issue that should be important to all. It's not a parochial Jewish problem, which many people dismiss as such, and that is the sort of kiss of death in this universal postmodern moment. You cannot be parochial or, or in view of the character of the longest hatred with its destructive power that is both known, well known and documented, the historical lessons of anti-Semitism ought to reach beyond the academic and policy, um, sorry, must reach beyond the Jewish people and concerned scholars from a wide range of disciplines within the academy and within policy-oriented disciplines. In fact, anti-Semitism anti should be perceived as a key aspect of the development of Western civilization. It is often perceived as a Jewish or parochial issue. This perception forms an imminent, sorry, an impediment to the study of anti-Semitism in the academy, which favors the universal over the particular. In fact, the study of anti-Semitism is often regarded as unworthy of consideration even as an, as an enemy to progressive universalistic worldview that is currently involved. Certain members of the academic community, especially those who espouse so-called progressive or postmodernist views, often perceive the study of anti-Semitism as an attempt to undermine criticism of the State of Israel and accuse those who, who and, and accuse those engaged in the study as being political advocates rather than pursuers of true scholarship. In fact, in this postmodern moment, this is, fairly, this is a fairly common view in the academy and in certain intellectual circles. 
It is therefore important to embark on a systematic critique of the intellectual and political impact of this philosophical movement, not only with regard to the safety and security of the Jewish people and their right to self-determination, but also with regard to the integrity of the Enlightenment project and perceptions of modernity. The contemporary canon includes a critique of Western traditional, of the traditional, traditional Western canon. For example, Michel, Michel Foucault and Edward Said that have helped, uh, have, and Edward Said that have helped, so I'm gonna read this again. The contemporary canon includes a critique of the traditional Western Canada, canon. For example, Foucault and Said that have also helped to demonize the Jewish culture and historical narratives in relation to Israel and beyond. This perspective, which is now an integral component of many good university curriculum throughout the West. Foucault, for example, welcomed the Iranian Revolution of 1979 as a triumph of the spirit of values over the profanity of Western capitalism and materialism. He perceived the Islamist Revolution as a critique of Western culture and a protest he perceived the Islamist revolution of, as a critique of Western culture and a protest against the political rationality and modernity. This sympathetic view of the Islamist revolution has been largely ignored, but has undoubtedly influenced, but has undoubtedly influenced the subsequent philosophical discourse and scholarship. Edward Said, who was in Paris in 1979, fondly recalls spending time with Foucault and notes that they both hoped that the Iranian Revolution would develop into what the French Revolution was to Kant 200 years earlier. Despite its violence, they hoped that the revolution would be a crucial step towards progress and emancipation for the people of Iran and, that, and the, the oppressed peoples of other nations. Their critique of modernity and Western colonial power, combined with the lack of an ethical alternative, prevented these early postmodernists from criticizing the excesses of the Iranian Revolution and its failure to recognize the other.